We are returning to our study of 2 Corinthians today, so please can you turn to chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 1 to 11. Today we're going to look at church discipline, and more specifically what ought to happen after such an unwelcome event. This is a very unusual topic, one I really wasn't expecting to come up right now, but here it is in today's text. And so we will deal with it. And this doesn't mean that we should just treat it as a minor bump on the road some way to something more interesting. Because all of us will probably encounter church discipline at some point in our Christian lives. At least we will if we attend a church that holds a high view of scripture. My very sincere prayer, well I have two sincere prayers. First of all that we don't actually ever have to do this. And secondly, that is, if you do happen to encounter it, it will be as an observer, not the one in the dock. But since we probably will come across it, we have to ask, what will we do when it does come along? And I'd also like to add that, although this passage here is specifically aimed at congregations, the principles that we're going to discover today will also hold true for individual disputes within our church. And of course, those are much more common. So let's read then 2 Corinthians verses 1 to 11. But I determined this myself that I would not come again to you in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I come I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you, with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man, so that, on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For indeed, I have forgiven anything I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. You know, as often as with the case with our poor friend, our friend Paul, it can be hard to figure out just what on earth he is talking about here. So, to set the scene. Paul has visited Corinth twice by the time he's writing this letter. And his first visit was a long one, about 18 months, during which he was hard at work establishing the church, preaching the gospel and discipling new converts. And he was also making a lot of tents during that time too. Then he goes on to Ephesus for a while to do the same thing, but he doesn't stay there very long because he wants to hurry back to Jerusalem for a festival there. And while he is away from uh, Corinth, things start to unravel somewhat. Now one of the things that's very obvious from his writings is that Paul is deeply engaged with all of his congregations. They were so much more to him than just a mark on a map. Corinth, tick, Philippi, check, 
Ephesus, been there, ho-hum. No, he was deeply invested in each one and keenly felt both their triumphs and troubles. And he did his very best to help them through their difficulties, although he might be a very long way away at the time. But of course things were a lot harder then, since for the most part he had only the latest papyrus and stylus from Woodcools to do the job. So when he hears that the custard is flowing freely back in Corinth, he's alarmed and writes them a letter. Several letters, in fact. Although we see two letters to the Corinthians in our Bibles today, he actually wrote a total of four, but unfortunately two have been lost to time. In the one that we're reading today, he is clearly referring to some sort of church disciplinary matter that had happened fairly recently and had had some effect on the whole congregation. Verse 5. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. Which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. Now we can't tell from the text who had done what or where or how to cause either the grief or inflict punishment by the majority. There are some commentators who suggest that these verses are referring to the case of the man who was living with his father's wife, which is mentioned in 1 Corinthians. But it seems unlikely that this is the case because, firstly, Paul had dealt with it specifically in that letter, and secondly, he'd also actually been to Corinth since then, and of course he would have sorted things out face to face. So it's most likely that what we are looking at here is something quite different. In the end, it doesn't really matter what he has done or what was done to him, because today we aren't interested in who shot JFK, but rather what happened next. So, what did happen next? Verse 7 holds the key. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary you ought rather to forgive and comfort him. Forgive and comfort a guilty man like this one. I think that's a pretty new idea. We all like the saying that punishment ought to fit the crime, but here we find that idea extended in a surprising direction. Yes, the punishment does fit the crime, but so too must the forgiveness after. Now before we go too far with this thought, let's remember that we are talking about here of matters of internal church law, not criminal law. That is a completely different matter in which we must render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar. So, what sort of law-breaking are we talking about then? Well, let's say it comes to someone in our congregation's attention that a fellow brother or sister is committing some kind of persistent sin of a serious nature. It causes us grief. We are devastated to hear of the person's sin. Perhaps it personally affects us. Perhaps it puts the name of Jesus to shame. There are lots and lots of possible effects. Well, how would one deal with that and of course you may very well know that the Lord himself has given us some very specific direction in Matthew 18 starting in verse 15 moreover if your brother sins against you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone if he hears you you have gained your brother but if he will not hear take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. 
So you see there is a very measured approach here. Firstly, the type of sin is qualified if your brother sins against you. So we're talking about a serious sin here that is a significant external consequence. Like adultery, for example. Not like stealing a paperclip from work. Something that will affect the wider body of the church if it becomes public. Then how do you deal with it? Not by descending on the perpetrator with a howling mob armed with pitchforks and whoops. No, that comes later. It's excellent fun. First of all, Jesus says that you go to him alone. Discreetly, to, to reason with him in a gentle manner. And often this is all it will take and it will probably be one of the scariest things that you will ever do. But if he hears you and repents, then you will have done a very great thing indeed. You will have won your brother back from sin. But oftentimes you won't win. People can be very stubborn and proud. So if the personal approach fails to have the proper effect, then go to him again, but this time with a few other people who are of a like mind. It shows that it isn't just your opinion here, but that others see the thing the same way. And moreover, it proves that the sin has been directly addressed. The one who is accused can never say that no one called, to account, called them to account for it. And again, this is a meeting where gentle, loving reasoning must be used. There's going to be a direct confrontation for sure. Tears, raised voices. It will certainly not be fun, but sometimes we need to have the conviction to see hard things through just because the stakes are so high. But perhaps even this level of engagement fails. What, what do we do then? Now is the time for the pitchforks and whips, Dave. No, it isn't ever, actually. Unreasoning, unrestrained accusation and assault is not ever appropriate for the work of the church, no matter how bad things are. Never, ever. Our testimony to the world is supposed to be that we will be known by our love for one another. John 13, 35. The Lord speaking, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And this should then be as true for the way we apply discipline as it does for going to tea at a church friend's house. However, if we've gotten to a point where both a single and group approach have failed, then unfortunately it is time for some sterner measures. Now is the time to make it public to the church so that the one who is sinning must endure the knowing gaze of all their brothers and sisters in Christ. Now think about what that might be like. The shame and the humiliation. Now I'd say that this is where the Corinthian church has gotten to here in this text. They had in their midst somebody who'd sinned, they'd been through all the previous steps and now both they and that person was suffering the consequences of this matter. It's important to note here that we can see from the way the text is written that this person has finally seen the error of their ways and repented. For those who are not in that space, there's only that awful instruction left to treat them like a heathen or tax collector. <laughs> it's funny how the feeling about some jobs have persisted through the ages. So, we have a good result here. He has repented and is grieving over his actions. Maybe we think now is the time to leave him to stew in them. 
He should have listened to those things earlier that we told him and will hang on to those feelings of outrage to enjoy by scandalizing between ourselves later. No. That's what the world will do. We are Christians and the world should know us by our love. So as Paul instructs here, we must forgive and comfort him, as verse 7 says. Forgive and comfort. Now this immediately reminds me of the saying that faith without works is dead, as the book of James says. Here in 2 Corinthians is the same. Faith and works together. How so? Well, forgiveness is usually understood as something that is inside our hearts, where we resolve both to stop holding offense against a person and to expect any further consequences for their actions. Of course, that's a very good thing to do, but it isn't enough because it actually still lacks the act of forgiveness, something done with our hands and our mouths. That internal feeling of forgiveness must be matched with an external action of comfort. In this case, not just by one person alone, but in a matter of public discipline like this one here, by the whole congregation. Why would we do this? Well, there's a very practical reason to match faith and works. As I said earlier, let's try to imagine what the punished one might be feeling. To be publicly accused and shamed would be an outstandingly difficult experience that could bring a person to the very limits of their endurance, perhaps causing them to leave, up, leave the church and give up their faith entirely. This is why Paul expresses the very real fear that they might be swallowed up and taken advantage of by Satan because of what they are feeling. The Greek word that he uses here for that swallowing is also used to describe animals who devour their prey, their prey and waves of water that overwhelm and swallow up objects and people. You look at it like that, it's a fearsome idea, overwhelming and consuming. One that we should never ever wish for one of our brothers and sisters. If that wish is true, to practically show our love for one another, then we must certainly act to forgive and comfort such a person when they have come to the point of repentance so as to heal them and to bring them home. Now this of course raises the question as to how we should act. Now there's a strong suggestion from the original Greek that Paul would like that forgiveness and comfort to be done as formally as the accusation. In other words, ceremonially and publicly. In verse 8 he says, Therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. The Greek word that he uses for reaffirm was used in those times as a legal term to describe the confirmation of a sale or something like an appointment to a job. And so it's therefore unlikely that it would be used here to suggest that the man accused should be merely called into the pastor's office and told behind closed doors that he is now forgiven. No, he needs much more than that if he is to be properly consoled and drawn back into the body of the church. It's one thing to face the elders as a body, but it still leaves that whole bunch of people outside to deal with. And therefore it makes a lot of sense to me that some kind of public ceremony would be very appropriate. <laughs> what that would actually look like on the day would have to be figured out for the 
specific circumstance that caused it. And I sincerely hope that um, that's never going to be something we come to. So what's our next question? What should our attitude be if we are part of such a thing? And we can see this quite easily from verse 8. And it turns out that hopefully you can help. Paul refers to love here. Who can guess what kind of love he is talking about? What's the Greek kind of love? Agape. Yes, exactly right. Not I love you because, but I love you despite. Unconditional love, sacrificial love. And it's used most often in Scripture to speak of the love that God is and shows and gives us. If it's used in relation to humans, it relates to the kind of love that can only flow from a person as a result of the Holy Spirit at work in their heart. This is the wonderful love we are expected to show a repentant sinner in our midst. It occurs to me that what I've just said over the last wee while might be very offensive to you. Outrageous. You may have had some very difficult personal experience as a result of someone else's sin. And it's very hard to imagine seeing that person stand at the front of the church to be ceremonially forgiven and more than that, shown unconditional love. You might find it almost impossible to find personal forgiveness for that person in your heart and feel angry towards them in the church leadership. Let me ask you to reflect on that a little. Because isn't this just the same thing that God has done for all of us, for you through Jesus? How much do you think that your sin offended holy God who made you and now sustains you and blesses you? We know what scripture says about sin. He passionately hates it and must punish it with a vehemence that we really don't understand. And yet Jesus, God himself, came to earth as a man and undeservedly died on a cross to take your place and the punishment for your sins. Sins, by the way, that you will keep on doing until you die. Yet still you are permanently forgiven. Your sins forgiven and forgotten as far as the east is from the west scripture says and you are loved agape love deeply and unconditionally if god does this for us we must do the same for others you know when you stop to think about it in those terms it really isn't at all surprising that paul might be suggesting such a thing because it's really a very natural and obvious response to God's gracious salvation in which we pay His grace forward. I'm pretty sure that some of you will remember a film by that name, Pay It Forward. It's a story about a boy, Trevor, who's challenged by his social studies teacher to come up with and action a plan that will change the world for the better. So the scheme he comes up with is a charitable program that's based on the networking of good deeds. He calls his plan Pay It Forward, which means the recipient of a favor does another favor for three other people rather than just paying the favor back to the first person. So Trevor does a favor for three people, asking each of them to pay it forward by doing favors for three other people and so on along a branching tree of good deeds, which gets bigger and bigger. 
His first good deed is to let a homeless man named Jerry live in his garage. And Jerry pays the favor, for the favor forward by doing car repairs for Trevor's mother. And so it goes on, spreading wider and wider. I'm sorry to say the film has a very sad ending. Trevor is stabbed and dies. But by the time that happens, his movement is spreading right across America. It's a wonderful idea that appealed so strongly to me when I saw the movie. And I can't help, still today, imagining what the world would be like if kindness was spread in this deliberate and unselfish way. You know, that's what God hopes we will do with his salvation for us. Pay it forward. And we can do that in so many ways by sharing our faith, by acts of kindness to friends and strangers alike and so on. But how about doing it by mending a life in the way that we have broken it by forgiving and comforting and reaffirming? Why should that be a surprising idea from our gracious, loving Father who has done just that for us, although we never, ever deserved it? We're very nearly done now, but before I end, there's one more important thing I must add. Although I've spent most of our time talking about a situation that involves the whole congregation of the church, I am very certain that what we have learned today is just as true for all of the times when forgiveness is necessary. I believe it's even true for things outside the church. There is an art to formally apologizing, which I think we've lost for the, mo the most part. And that art includes the way that we respond to that apology. Thank you. I forgive you. You have to say it. Let us move forward together. And these days we seem to find it almost impossible to apologize. My experience is that a man would rather fight you in the street like a dog than say he was sorry, no matter how wrong he is. I wonder why that is. Maybe one reason is that because as a society we have forgotten how to forgive and comfort and console those who have wronged us. The church can be different. We can be different. You can be different. Pay Christ's forgiveness forward. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way that your word has struck us today in a place where we have so much difficulty. The world is telling us all the time to get even, to be mad, not to forgive. I pray, Lord, that as we come upon situations where we can use this instruction, that your Holy Spirit in our hearts would remind us about forgiveness and that we would do the unexpected thing and that it would bring glory to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.